I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. This episode I've created to celebrate Rendering Unconscious' four-year anniversary. On January 22nd, 2022, Rendering Unconscious will be turning four years old. So I wanted to take a moment to thank all of the listeners and all of the guests and all of the Patreon patrons uh, for your support and for being on the podcast and for listening. Of course, I wouldn't be here without you. Um, I wanted to also take a moment to mention that our next psychoanalysis art and the occult event at Morbid Anatomy Museum Online is being held the next day on January 23rd. And we're going to have two fantastic speakers. We have Todd McGowan presenting The Psychic Violence of Alfred Hitchcock. And he's going to be focusing on Hitchcock's three late masterpieces, Vertigo, Psycho, and The Birds. And then we'll have Mary Wilde presenting Roman Polanski's Apartment Trilogy, Repulsion, Rosemary's Baby, and The Tenant. So that is happening next weekend on Sunday, January 23rd. Uh, It's online at 2 o'clock New York City East Coast time, uh, which here in Sweden is 8 p.m. In the UK, it's 7 p.m. And of course, on the West Coast of the U.S., it's at 11 a.m. on Sunday. So I hope you can join us for that. It's going to be a really fun evening. For more information, you can visit our website, psychartcult.org, or visit Morbid Anatomy's website, morbidanatomy.org, and look at what's on. And just to let you know um, a few things that I also have on the horizon, because we are now four years uh, into the podcast, I have quite a collection of interviews um, at my fingertips. So what I decided to do, um, as you know, there is Rendering Unconscious, the book, which is available from Tripart Books. And that edition, the hardcover, is basically sold out. There might be a couple left, but it's basically sold out. So right now I'm working on editing together an expanded paper edition of the book. Um, that'll be available more widely through Amazon and all uh, online distributors. And then after I finish with that, I am going to work on a series of Rendering Unconscious books where I collect together different interviews on various topics such as psychoanalysis and technology, psychoanalysis and the arts and culture, psychoanalysis and politics, uh, maybe one focusing on clinical work, theoretical work. Um, And I'm going to edit together books in that vein. So definitely keep an ear out for that. I'll let you know as those develop. Of course, some of the episodes of Rendering Unconscious have been different lectures from various events that I've held over the years. 
And for example, the conference Psychoanalysis, Art and the Occult uh, that was held uh, in London 2016 is already available as a book of the collected papers presented at that conference. That's the Fenris Wolf Volume 9. I think the hardcover of that also might be nearly sold out. There just might be a couple left. And Carl is currently working on editing together a paperback edition of that as well. So that'll be available more widely. And then after he finishes with that, um, we're going to edit together the papers from the second conference we held in the same vein, uh, our Psychoanalysis Art and Occult Conference, Rewriting the Future, 100 Years of Esoteric Modernism and Psychoanalysis. And once we're done with that, that'll be available as the Fenris Wolf Volume 11. So those are some projects in the work. Um, of course, also included in the podcast stream is the show 23rd Mind TV that Carl and I do periodically where we kind of let you know what we're up to and also showcase um, things that our friends and different collaborators have sent us that they're working on as well because, of course, we're big supporters of the arts as well as artists ourselves. Um, so thank you for listening to those I hope to do more episodes along the lines of the group discussions we've had, um, such as the discussion on the book Lacan and Race and the discussion on the book Lacan and the Environment. So look forward to some of those in the future. And for this episode of Rendering Unconscious, I decided to make kind of a medley um, it's not a greatest hits. It's I didn't choose anyone specifically because I thought they were the best guest or anything like that. I actually kind of, as I like to do, went kind of randomly through the external hard drive that has all of the uh, podcast files, all the raw files, and I just kind of scrolled through and grabbed some episodes, and then I uploaded the episode to the iMovie and, you know, just kind of dropped the mark at a random place in the episode and, you know, grabbed a slice of the conversation from there. And it's always fun to see kind of what turns up that way when you don't think about it too much. Um, I love to do things like that. And ended up with this really nice kind of bouquet of uh, clips from different podcast episodes. And... Um, yeah, I hope you enjoy this kind of medley episode. The idea that we are human, that indigenous peoples are human in the eyes of uh, uh, American society is a relatively recent thing. So for this reason, you know, and way more reasons that I won't get into because it's already kind of a deep conversation, but suffice it to say we've been through a lot Um and we're actually not supposed to be here. The, the policy was extermination and yet we're here. And so um, we're dealing with the after effects of that. So um, I think we as a nation can really do a lot and uh, I can get into more of that later. No matter who we are, no matter what skin color we have, whatever language we speak, we all have a profound ability in this country to turn this situation around for the indigenous peoples of this land, for the original stewards of this land, for the original caretakers of this land, uh, so that native peoples no longer feel like outcasts in their own home. Uh, there's a lot that we as a nation can do to start 
um, bringing healing into these communities. There's a lot that's already being done, in fact. Um, and there's a lot that each and every one of us can do in our prayers to, to keep Native people in mind and think of the ways in which we are benefiting from the displacement and dispossession of Indigenous peoples and how that has psychological effects on those communities. So um, I don't know, Tanea, do you want to speak to sort of like what you do on the ground to address these issues or anything else? Sure. Yeah, and just so Mike Nunania Tanea Winder. My name's Tanea Winder. I'm a citizen of the Duckwater Shoshone Nation. I'm also Pyramid Lake Paiute, Southern Ute, Diné, and Black. And I uh, grew up on the Southern Ute Reservation where my father's from. And just to like emphasize and, and highlight some of what Lila was saying, like even just last, only last month was official language overturned in Colorado. One of the former governors, John Evans, had two orders. Um, and one, one of them was calling for citizens to kill and destroy indigenous people who are deemed hostile. And that legislation was used to start Sand Creek Massacre. And that language was never officially revoked even after Colorado achieved statehood. So 157 years later, only like last month was that language changed. So it was still technically legal to kill indigenous people in Colorado up until last month. Um, and, you know, for me, just thinking about the power of actions, but the power of words, you know, my mom always speaks of words being like seeds and you have to be careful of the, the, the things you say, the seeds you plant, the words you say about others and yourself because you give, you give life to it in that way. And words, you know, like in these legislation, those harmful things, words that called us savage and, and hostile and as Lyo was saying, deemed us not even human. I think all of that impacts those soul wounds have continued until today. And it wasn't until I started working with Indigenous youth for one of my jobs. My job was to help them get into college to increase like post-secondary enrollment. Um, and the language of these federal grants, you know, it's just so much around like um, you know, colonialism, like good grades, like as high SAT scores, like all of these things. And the longer I did it, I was just like, there's this whole other component missing around like spiritual health, emotional health, mental health, and how all of those things tie into a person's quote unquote success. So it just seemed like this, this missing piece, you know, and for me, um, you know, youth, they're, they're always that, that beacon, that like indicator. Um, I wish I could think of a better metaphor because I don't like coal mines, but like the canary in the coal mines, you know, like if the canaries died, like that was the warning to the miners that the air wasn't good. The situation wasn't good. It was deadly. And I think when so many of our youth are taking their lives or dying from different substance abuse and things like that, like that's our, our canary, like that's showing us like something is wrong um, with this world, which we've all known, but, and so then the next step was do something. So for me, like Lila struggling a lot in my youth with, with substance abuse, with anxiety that I think comes from that historical and personal trauma as well. Like that's something like on the, on the lower end, I think people live with anxiety all the way up to the things like depression and other, other, dis, other, um, other things that need healing. But for me, poetry, writing, music, like those were the things that grounded me. Like that was my medicine. That was my therapy. And so 
you know, we, I found um, a group of, of artists, a group of friends, family who I believed, um, you know, were similar, like warriors in that way. Like each of them had survived and like carried these scars and stories of survival that I thought, wow, like if, if this student heard Lila, I know they would, they would get like the inspiration they need. Or if this student heard tall Paul, or if this student heard Jordan, or if this student heard Frank, like just all of the people that we work with. And I thought, you know, how can I assemble like relatives to come together? So we visit communities and tell our stories, tell our stories of survival, because, you know, that's how a lot of our history, a lot of our lessons are passed down through these stories. Like storying is sacred. Storying is our medicine. Like if you go visit elders and you want to learn about something, you'll often get a story. And there's so much in that story, so many lessons, like things you can pull out. And so for me, that was, that was the key. Like that was um, providing that triage, you know, Lila and I um, were talking earlier, you know, like we're the first on the scene sometimes like doing that triage and just doing what we can to offer, offer help. And then the students and the youth and community, they have all the other resources, like their school, their families, their, their aunties and grandmas and people that, that help because for us, you know, healing and, and working on your, your wellness, it's, it's communal, you know, it's never an individual process. Liberation theory. Yes. Okay. Um, what a small task to talk about. Um, so I, I was saying that I got interested in liberation theory partially because, um, and how it applies to psychoanalysis. So like a liber, a liberatory psychoanalysis, liberation psychoanalysis. Um, cause I think a lot of people, when I tell them, so I'm, a, I'm Arab, I'm an immigrant. I came here post nine 11. I don't have American citizenship. I'm on a green card. Um, I'm a highly racialized subject. My childhood was that as well. I lived in Canada for about seven years in a thousand population town in Alberta. And it was very, very, very racist and very anti-indigenous as well. And so a lot of people, when they meet me now and they know about the work that I do, they're just kind of like, why psychoanalysis? Like, why the fuck are you in psychoanalysis? Right? And I understand where that comes from. And our field has been... Um, it has a very sordid history in terms of the ways in which it takes up these issues. Um, and I was not satisfied with that in my own training. I came in and I had to fight tooth and nail to talk about racial issues, even as they unfolded in the group process. It was just like, hello, um, look at the ways that we're talking about patients. Look at the language that we use stuff that's normalized. That's just like everyday language and nobody questions. Mm -hmm. And I was often, of course, thought about as aggressive and it doesn't matter. I could sit there all day with just a smile on my face and I would still be called aggressive, which started me thinking about like, what else is going on here? It's clearly not what I'm saying. It's clearly not what I'm doing. There's a projective process that is going on that is larger than us that goes back way far. And over the years, I started to realize that there's so much of this that's disavowed, particularly in the context of the United States, mm -hmm. that whose unconscious has come to like come come to haunt it mm -hmm. with a vengeance, right? The stuff that has been disavowed, this talk about a post-racial society, a post-you know genocidal society, a forgetting entirely about um, the ways in which this country was formed to begin with. 
um, more about how that ties into Israel and why there's like a natural connection between the United States and Israel in terms of this genocidal history. But the, that and so the theories I loved, right? I crave the theories. I'm an English literature major. I started as an English literature major. That is where psychoanalysis is alive and well. Mm-hmm. I did a psychology minor and I felt like the behavioral approach was so lacking in terms of its depth and in terms of its um, uh, respect for the human, right? In the depth of the human and internal narratives. And being a racialized subject and sort of also being in Lebanon at the time, I felt there's also in behaviorism, there's a sort of overlay or maybe under underlying premise that can also be used to racist ends. Like somehow we as people of color don't have an internal world. And the only thing that we can do is be conditioned. And that's often how it's used. Like right in Palestine, this is, for example, NGOs, how NGOs use things. Like, oh, don't worry about their internal world. They're really not sophisticated enough. And it's it's a classical sort of orientalist idea about things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so here I was in, in between. I was conflicted. I was like, I love this theory. I feel like it has, uh, along with sister disciplines, by the way, which are oftentimes just ignored entirely, right? Critical race theory and queer theory and all that. That's always ignored. But together, I feel like we have the language, the tools, to uncover ideological processes. So something inside of me knew that that was there, but in practice and in theory, that was entirely missing. And I was like, what is going on here that there are no spaces for us to talk about this? So when I found liberation theory, and I thought, what a great segue into psychoanalysis for my own thought. Now, of course, I'm not the first person to think about this, Fanon, (laughs) having been somebody who naturally knew this, right, by way of his own location in this world and what he went through and with this sort of natural um, understanding about the political and the personal and about our role and our ethical imperative to provide language and to provide a sort of framework around why these larger political things happen and, by the way, to locate ourselves within them. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in just being somebody, and that is what liberation theory is about. It's like, you cannot be the person just on the sidelines pontificating about what is happening. You have to realize your own position within that. And in North American psychoanalysis, at least, I would say psychoanalysis as a whole, but particularly in North American psychoanalysis, our complicity within these systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, encountering all these different, you know, schools of literary theory, Marxism, fe- feminism, post-colonial theory, and, and psychoanalysis. Um, and I think one of the, you know, kind of major kind of orientations for me that came out of of that experience and that would lead me to graduate school and then eventually to psychoanalysis was a very kind of straightforward pedagogical um, assignment that I think a lot of uh, English instructors use, which is to assign a particular text and then require students to apply a variety of different um, theoretical lenses to the same text, right? You know, read this poem or short story or watch this film, you know, and then offer a Marxist reading and then a feminist reading and then maybe a psychoanalytic reading and see how uh, they differ. Um, and I think that apart from just the the gesture of, uh, of learning these different theoretical lenses, what I really took away from that practice um, was that 
the changing the lens by which I read, right, didn't just change the interpretation, it actually ended up changing me, right, um, both as a scholar, um, but, but, you know, as, as a human being, right, in a, in a broad sense of the, the word, um, that uh, to, to read differently, to, um, to look for alternative forms of signification um, in, uh, in a text, in a social political phenomenon, um, actually ends up changing the reader in the process. And so I think that insight for me was just, you know, paving the way for, for psychoanalysis and an engagement in psychoanalytic theory, which, you know, quite obviously uh, takes an interest in, um, in the power of signification, of resignification, um, and, and the like. And so um, I eventually moved away from from English and literary theory and moved more into film studies, film theory, um, which, which also was a kind of fruitful discipline to engage in psychoanalytic theory since, um, especially in the US, uh, film departments really emerged in the academy um, at, the, at, uh, at a time in which um, French philosophy, French theory and psychoanalysis was, was so uh, influential. Um, and so I, I found even, even though I was going to graduate school in the early 2000s when, uh, when psychoanalysis was, uh, was not quite as prominent um, in, in film studies departments, it still was a, you know, a kind of viable area of study um, and was, uh, I, I was lucky enough to find myself in a doctoral program that uh, was steeped in continental philosophy and Lacanian psychoanalysis. Um, and so that, that was, uh, that kind of, you know, sent me on my way and, uh, and, and here I am now. I've known a lot of people in, in a lot of different programs in literature too, where, where it overlaps with philosophy, where, you know, you've come into the class and it's a really big name teacher and they're going to tell you all about this this new thing that they, they've got going and um, you know you, they, they they don't go through I mean you don't know whether they're getting Descartes right or Hobbes right or whoever until you go back to it and, and read it yourself and I find that happens a lot of times with Freud like Freud is referenced <laughs> everywhere, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then if you actually go back and read Freud, you're like, that's not at all what he was saying, you know? So it's like, um, it's really helpful well, it, to actually just at least read it yourself and make your own opinions instead of just reading yeah, anybody that's, else's opinion about it. That's absolutely central. That that really ought to be a part of anybody's, whether they're like a student, that, that should be part of a student's experience but it's also part of like ongoing professional development for us as well, because we, we've always inherited these um, judgments about what somebody was saying or the quality of what they were saying or, or what its implications are. And, and we, don't, we don't actually know until we go back to it. And we, we have to be kind of selective because you can't read everybody. But you know, it's funny with the Freud thing, you know, um, it didn't take long for that to be the case, right? Because Lacan, one of his main shticks is, telling uh, the psychoanalytic establishment of his time that they're not actually reading Freud carefully and that Freud is actually saying this or this or this. <laughs> so that was only, what, like... Uh, 50 years 40, later. 40, yeah, yeah, not exactly. even. <laughs> so, so it didn't take too long for, for that sort of thing to happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've actually... It's, like, it's psychoanalytic training in New York... Um, 
I actually had people like not teach Freud at all and they were like, oh, he's irrelevant now. And I'm just like, well, if we're going to be psychoanalysts, probably we should read Freud, you know, <laughs> at least see what he was talking about when he started this whole thing, you know. Yeah, and it, it's interesting too. There's there's a sort of like a wider dismissal of him in, in uh, psychology as a whole, especially in psychotherapy. And people are like, oh, the cognitive revolution. Nobody ever has to read Freud again. He's just, you know, uh, full of all sorts of mythology and nonsense. A little bit of psychodynamic and psychoanalytic work from my MSW at Smith. Um, and I have also grown to love studying and, and thinking about things through an analytic lens, primarily because I think those theories have a lot to tell us about the ways that uh, group dynamics and political dynamics play out. So from that perspective, um, I find a lot of my interests um, ultimately coming back to theories that I think have their roots in a lot of really analytic ways of seeing the world. Um, and also certainly in my own practices um, in the jobs that I've held as a social worker, I found it really useful to be able to conceptualize situations and interactions through that lens. So the work that I do now is um, at an organization in Queens that works with mostly people who are re-entering um, after being incarcerated, some for a short period of time in jail, others for a longer period of time um, in prison. And um, the organization provides many services, um, but the area that I work within is our mental health clinic with a mix of clients who are mandated to treatment by the court or by parole or probation, along with some clients who are interested in voluntary treatment um, to most of the time begin processing uh, things like anger and trauma that feel very prevalent in their day-to-day -day existence. So. In this role, um, I've had a lot of really positive experiences integrating psychodynamic thought. Um, and also in this role, I've, I've gotten to think through the ways that mandated treatment um, is so limited and limiting. Um, so in that capacity, I think it's been really helpful to know that um, one way of understanding the mandate in a, in a treatment that I might do is by thinking of it as a third um, or like another presence in, in the dynamic between me and the client. Um, and then, you know, in the work that I was doing before this job, I think I was also very much thinking about the court system as a third in all of my interactions with clients from more of an advocacy perspective when I was at a public defender's office here in the city doing a lot of sentencing advocacy and um, mitigation work with clients who had um, attorneys who were public defenders. They were charged with crimes in the borough of Brooklyn. And um, my role there was mostly focused on trying to create opportunities for prosecutors to give my clients um, alternatives to the jail or prison sentences they were facing. Influence, legacy, Freud's uh, influence on Said, the influence of psychoanalysis on postcolonialism more generally, because these two fields uh, tend to be seen as kind of um, in a kind of theoretical tension, and perhaps there's some of that, but I think that um, there's a lot of interesting overlap that is worth exploring, and this is partly what I do in uh, Freud and Said. Another dimension that's very important, uh, which is, I think, um, kind of an additional uh, layer that complexifies my analysis in decolonial psychoanalysis is kind of thinking about the materiality of oppression and violence 
through this conception of uh, racialized or racial capitalism. So basically I'm situating this ideology uh, within this, what I call an apparatus to kind of talk about the ideology, but also the materiality of this uh, oppression and violence. So thinking about exploitation, alienation, kind of classical Marxian terms, but also adding the dimension of dehumanization uh, of what I call the non-European or racialized lumpen proletariat, right? So, um, so basically building on my previous analysis, but complexifying it, adding more dimensions, and of course, exploring uh, the relationship between Freud and Said in, you know, uh, fully as, as, as far as I, I could um, find based on uh, my research. So that's kind of the, the overview. I can talk more details based on what you want to know. Yeah, but it's really filling like an important space in psychoanalytic theory because I haven't seen anything written very extensively on Freud and Said ever before. Yeah, so it's been explored in like articles here and there, but there hasn't been um, a book length exploration. So in the first chapter, uh, which is on what I call post or decolonial psychoanalysis, I kind of do like a historical survey or literature review of the connections between uh, post-colonialism or decoloniality and psychoanalysis. So looking at, you know, Fanon, Manoni, Memi, but even starting before that and looking at the work of Willem Reich, who's kind of uh, overlooked, right? Um, because he had interesting analyses of fascism and writing as he saw fascism on the rise in Germany. Uh, so I do kind of a, the first chapter, kind of a, a more general overview, but then by this, uh, the second, third and fourth chapters, which are the body chapters of the book, uh, are the ones where I, I actually explore in depth the relationship between Freud and Said. So the first chapter uh, looks at uh, Edward Said's second book, which is called Beginnings. Uh, it's not as famous as Orientalism, which is his third book. And in beginnings, you can actually see Said drawing on Freud a lot in his analysis, uh, in particular, the interpretation of dreams, which clearly Said loves um, as a work of literature. I mean, Said's training is in textual criticism. So he's looking at Freud, not only as a scientist and as someone that invented psychoanalysis, but also uh, as a writer, as a creative writer and how he, he authors uh, psychoanalysis through his writing style. And basically the argument that he makes in beginnings is that uh, Freud's writing style in, in the interpretation of dreams uh, is not only a scientific introduction to psychoanalysis and how we interpret dreams in the clinic, but it's also uh, a sort of, weirdly enough, an encounter with the unconscious uh, through its own style. So that's what, what makes it kind of uh, an exemplary modern text and kind of revolutionary in a way that its style actually captures its message. The, the idea that, the, the, that Freud's id, das es, mm -hmm. is also is the it. And I think that's a kind of, I think, I almost feel like, I know Freud approved the Strachey's standard edition of his works and so that he approved every translation, but I really feel like understanding uh, the way passion worked and the way psychoanalysis theorized things, it would have been so much better if it was known as the it. Mm -hmm. And because then it, it would just be like, oh, that's what I feel when I feel totally this thing inside me that I can't control. It's it speaking or it's 
it's taking control of me. So I really, that's one of those cases where I think the translation is very, the other one is, of course, this is very famous, is Trebe as a translation for instinct, and rather than Strachey did not use the term drive. But this is, I think, one of the saddest translations, because I really feel like, because it doesn't say anything to people. They just, mm-hmm. it just, and it gets bandied about in cultural analysis as something that just doesn't mean anything. But I think it, like that it inside of me, I think they, people would really, that would really resonate with people. So exactly. I feel like that, yeah, I think that's a real missed opportunity of, in translation, you know. Yeah, because everybody would be like, oh, yeah, I know, I know that experience. <laughs> exactly. But oh, you talk about what the id, and then they'd be like, "What? I don't know what that is. It's too abstracted, yeah. and it has no meaning, you know, has no know. meaning right. otherwise. Right, it's not an English word, really. Yeah, it's right. nothing, there's nothing to connect to it. Right. Um, and same thing with drive, like instinct, that just brings it back to biology, and people think biology, biology, but that's not what he's talking about. Right. I mean, it again, it's just just what you said earlier about this collision between culture and biology that's what drive is it's a it's the result of that collision and so if you translate tree by instinct then you've just you've just missed that altogether yeah then you're thinking i'm hungry or it's like a reflex when the doctor like hits my knee or you know i need to procreate or whatever right exactly (laughs) yeah yeah no i mean i think one thing i've grown to really love about freud uh, sitting a lot with with Freud and 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 Freud's, Freud's own revisions of himself is that he just is a very flexible and capacious thinker. Um, many people, when they're elaborating a science, you know, they build linear linearly uh, A and then B and then C, and even as they might contradict themselves, they sort of repress that. Now, Freud, of course, burned a ton of his writing. Uh, We only have a partial record. Uh, The Freud archives have been uh, very slow to release new material, but we can see Freud revising on the fly all the time. Uh, And like you said, making use of what works uh, and and then repeating or not repeating it um, across decades of treatment. Um, And that's something I really came to value, especially in in looking in the book uh, at Freud's work on money. Um, and really thinking about the status of money, which of course is another way that treatment is mediated or not. Uh, but even money's absence, of course, is a, is a mediation under capital. Absolutely. And also you talk about the frame. And the frame as a classic example of, uh, so that's one of the ways I start by saying that we may val- valorize and celebrate the in-person scenario as this kind of pure encounter. Uh, but I try and think about how it's ritualized and staged, not in the under the lines of kind of a performance um, only, but, you know, really there's all this kind of binding work and boundary work that happens in the elaboration of a frame as, as a kind of mediating of the encounter that, <coughs> sorry, some people of course feels really absent once we move, you know, online to Zoom, what we're doing right now, you and, and me. Uh, but for other people, you know, a huge rush of creativity can come back in in those spaces. Uh, for Freud, with the letter, there was all kinds of re-substantiation of the frame, including a kind of recourse to imagining or fantasizing uh, being together in the room, but not only. So moving back and forth between representing a room in the letter and really using 
what's called in media studies, right? The affordances of a letter to communicate something very special about that different container. Yeah, and I love how you talk about, yeah, how, how teletherapy has evolved alongside of therapy, like since the beginning, like it's always been there. Always been there and always been changing. Um, you know, so that's something I try and detail rather quickly in the, in the introduction of the book, uh, that the minute something has been set, it's also been diverted from. Um, often, and this was, you know, really, the book was finished when the pandemic started. Um, and we can also talk about that if you want, like what the pandemic taught me. And so I was able to write a coda that reflects on some of the very early clinical work uh, happening under the sign of both the pandemic, but also the uprisings of now two summers ago, if we, if we decide that the end of August is no longer summer um, uh, in 2020. And, um, you know, when the book was finished, uh, it was clear to me before the pandemic that teletherapy often asserts itself and reasserts itself in relationship to crisis. Um, that one of the very first things that happens is that that work, the sort of therapeutic work gets interrupted in crisis. And then that people try and find a way, like what you're saying about Freud. And sometimes those ways are deeply pernicious, <laughs> right? They are uh, about profit motive. They are about um, batch processing patients in order to increase bottom lines. Uh, but in other moments, it's deeply moving uh, activist work that's about making a new form of care or a new form of what I call in the book distanced intimacy that allows the work to go on. Uh, and that's also what we saw in the pandemic, both so far. I mean, the pandemic, which is deeply ongoing, that on the one hand, uh, there was a huge rush uh, to what I'm starting to sort of not anymore jokingly call big therapy. Uh, a huge eco explosion of uh, B-series funding for apps for telehealth and, and including teletherapy. And on the other hand, all kinds of exciting and new ways that patients were able to meet with their therapists, whether or not they'd ever met before in person. Um, the, the fact that in, in, in times when the whole world and almost everyone we know is destabilized, um, Lacanian theory shows itself to be um, a, a stable, a stable body of knowledge. is is astonishing, and um, and in my book cannot possibly coincide with how an analyst would ever work clinically. Because I mean, just to throw in something else, I mean, if there's if there's anything that 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 that, that Freud reiterated on, on two, three occasions uh, about how an analyst should approach a patient is that one should always approach the patient as if it's the first patient one's ever worked with, you know, which means what? Well, it, it kind of means that you have to be prepared to, to put everything you know and everything you've learned to, to one side um, because the patient's uniqueness might very well destabilize your knowledge. So on the one hand, you have you have Freud arguing that each and every clinical encounter should potentially lead to a destabilization of knowledge. And on the other hand, you have the Lacanian saying, well, 
okay, there's, there's about half a million people dying out there. We're all holed up, but Lacanian theory will just stay the same. It's, it's just, it's absurd, Vanessa. It's absolutely absurd. Right. And, 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 and so as a result of that, I developed this symptom of, of cracking uh, a joke every five minutes. The last four years of human life on this planet has been driven by a relentless sense of the way that social media has transformed public discourse. Now, social media is music. To me, at least, there's a kind of a musical component to how we think about social space. Um, so architects um, design physical buildings, musicians design uh, conceptual spaces that are based on patterns in sound. So an, a musician is kind of an architect of the invisible. And what's fascinating about what you were just saying is that every aspect of our contemporary life now has been conditioned by algorithms. And algorithms are simply mathematical patterns that generate predictable outcomes and everything from the recommendation engines on YouTube or TikTok or you name it, part of them are based on what you call the social graph. Um, and we're now in what people are calling the attention economy. So all of these issues, the attention economy basically makes money off of how long you're engaged on that platform. So Mark Zuckerberg gets a nice fat check every year, billions and billions, uh, Jeff Bezos made all these billionaires made more money during the pandemic than they ever have before, precisely because people were far more engaged on all these digital platforms. So let's reverse engineer that. Let's think of it as you're pulling that narrative apart and seeing what can be done in uh, reverse engineering these patterns. Everything is patterns. Um, so hopefully that kind of goes to the heart of your question. Again, I have a tendency to kind of always think of uh, multidimensionality, multimodality at the core of um, modern life and nothing is simple. I mean, there, there's, it's uh, turtles all the way down, as they say. Yeah. And that, I mean, and that totally reflects the way the unconscious is theorized to kind of be that everything is like more like a web and everything kind of has a lot of different pathways leading to nodal points. And like, for example, in dreams, like the thing that pops up as the image in the dream will have so many different things determining it or so many different scenes or emotions or whatever from your life determining that one scene. It's never so cut and dry as just being like from one direct thing to one direct image. Right. But just imagine that we're in this era where social media and these reflections of the human condition have been put into like kind of a hall of mirrors, like an infinite series of reflections of reflections of reflections. I, I truly don't know what the messaging is anymore. Like I don't even try to figure it out because there's so, there's so many mixed messages. Yeah, um, I mean, there's something, there was definitely a point in the media in the United States where all of a sudden they just cleared the pandemic over and told everyone to go out because literally like everyone I know in the States, no matter who they were, and these are people that did not know each other, all of a sudden were like, well, the pandemic's over now. <laughs> it's like, really? Because it's not. Um, so it's definitely like media in different places is telling people different things. Um yeah, and I think that, you know, it's just because corporations and governments want to boost the economy and have people spending and consuming and traveling to boost the economy. Um, mm -hmm. And I think they're using people's 
kind of cabin fever from being cooped up for a year you know they're, they're like playing on that and telling people to go out and do things and people are itching to go out and do things and so they're doing it but I don't think we should listen to those uh, corporate corporations and governments because they really just want to stimulate the economy and they're putting money money making over life and that's not good no it's not it's really not um I mean, actually, uh, I'm just glad that you um, recently you you invited me to write a, a book chapter with you, um, and um, I, I don't know if we're allowed to like talk about that at all. Or um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, without naming the prospective um, publishers and stuff, it was more generally to speak on the fact that the topic the topic really intrigued me. Like when you said that. Um, it's really a book about the changing ways in which we approach um, our, our kind of, I guess, visual art consumption or TV or movie consumption mm. uh, in the pandemic and our relationship to screens, really. And the fact that there's been this just kind of radical shift from the silver screen, the big screen of the cinema you know, and kind of in vivo situation of actually being in a movie theater as an outing, as like a discrete event from what's going on inside your home to then constantly just being in one space. And that's where you consume everything and how it's kind of competing with other screens all the time. Mm -hmm. And it really got me thinking, like, I think, I firstly think I have to thank you for asking me to write that chapter with you because it kind of gave me something productive to do um, uh, and made me think more deeply and more like intentionally and unconsciously about maybe something that I've been doing maybe on almost like autopilot. Um, and it just really got me thinking about how mesmerizing smaller screens can be and how they can just easily become so insidious and we don't even realize how mm. much we're engaging. We call it multitasking because that makes us feel good as if we're, being, we're doing something positive. We're able to juggle multiple tasks at the same time. But what it's actually doing is splitting our attention and diluting it um, from truly experiencing like the work of art, which is the cinema. Mm -hmm. Being in that, uh, in, I guess the isolation chamber, like the sensory deprivation chamber of the cinema uh, compels the viewer to only focus on one thing. And so it really facilitates suspension of disbelief. And I feel like we, we can't have that at the moment. It's impossible. I was wondering about the difference between this idea of the cut and the idea of remix because somebody was talking about how in order for something to be art it has to be something that the artist had intentionally decided was going to be art and that's what made art art and I like fundamentally do not agree with that only because I think there's plenty of people that just like compulsively make art but I guess those would be outsider artists. So, of course, there's lots of different, like, threads to those kinds of arguments and debates. Um, but then I was thinking about this idea of cut-ups and remix and how maybe the cut-ups are, are from the century before when people needed to kind of 
cut down the system and like deconstruct the narrative and then now we're in a time where everything is like being deconstructed and we need to like put it together in new ways so i i love cases like this because what you just said is exactly the premise of this uh, little article that i wrote on sounding out um i don't know back in 2012 or 2013 or something like that where i said exactly that that mashups and cutups are even though they often get compared to each other because there, uh, if you were to watch someone making a mashup or watch someone making a, a cut up, you wouldn't really necessarily notice much of a difference other than that one is digital and the other is analog. Um, but from an epistemological standpoint, they're actually totally opposite to one another for all of the reasons that you say, right? Cut ups were a form of resistance against the hegemony of the master narrative um, and against the hegemony of, well, what, uh, what Bill Burroughs called control. Right, the kind of um, linguistic, ocular-centric vision of a unitary worldview um, that has no basis in empirical reality to the best that we understand it, um, but that was so instrumental to maintaining political power during the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, and the mashup is, as you say, this um, largely organic response to um, the decontextualization of cultural information in the in the age of um, infinite digital platforms and networks uh, and an attempt to kind of create a language whereby you could re-suture meaning together through the the collection and uh, an arrangement of, of disparate cultural sources. So I, I think I think you're dead on uh, accurate and it's so I don't know about you but like I, I know that you're um, you know a, a mid-career scholar like I am so I, I I, you know, when I was when I was a newer scholar, and even before I got into academia, when I was just an aspiring public intellectual, um, you know, I was so covetous of my ideas. Like I'd get really upset if somebody else expressed an idea of mine in a public forum, and I'd be like, oh, I missed my shot. Like I had a window to to own this idea, and I didn't. And then, in part, because so much of my work is about the idiocy of the concept of the ownership of ideas, but also just having it reached a certain stage in in uh, in my life arc um, I'm so excited now when I see ideas that I have that I that um, that I either haven't had the chance to express fully in a public forum or that haven't um, had a big footprint in the public being expressed by other people because the ideas are what matter not the people who express them um, and so like I was I was just filled with delight at seeing your response to that to that thread um, because that means that the idea has at least twice as many um, brains thinking it and uh, and mouths and, and fingers expressing it as it did before. Now, I love that. And I think that I think that what's happening uh, in the digital age, I mean, you guys. I guess I, I found you out from David Gunkel and you guys are coming from more this tech side of things whereas I'm I'm historically not very tech oriented at all but I feel like clearly in this day and age like everybody has to be like everybody has to understand politics and everybody has to understand technology <laughs> or else we're having going to have even more problems you know and so I'm trying to educate myself more and more about technology but I, I've been thinking about it from like a psychoanalytic point of view and the realm of the digital and digital media and how this is like a perfect way for people to understand kind of psychoanalytic ideas more because you can see like how people are projecting their ideas on one another so clearly and you can see everybody kind of developing this ego 
that they want everyone to see, which is not the person that they really are underneath, and that sort of thing. You can see them all like playing out so clearly. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I don't know, I think that the, the digital world is more important than ever. It's so interesting that you'd say that because, you know, I feel like we've, Freud and obviously post-Freudian critiques of Freud um, were such a dominant way of understanding human action and social organization and cultural engagement during the 20th century. But I, there was this kind of um, this uh, the scientific turn or this technophiliac turn around the end of the 20th century where, you know, first we 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 saw these people who wanted to understand human cognition and communication putting subjects into fmri devices and tracking the flow of blood around their brains and then you know right now we're in the middle of this era of big data and modeling and the kind of money ball approach to understanding social action where you know every person has their kind of digital homunculus that's like a collection of uh, facts about them that are used to uh, for the purposes of predictive analytics. And now we're on the verge of entering into this kind of AI slash neural interface, you know, uh, portion that combines the worst of fMRI with the worst of data mining uh, to create these these uh, these, you know, highly detailed digital models of uh, individual personalities, um, which is problematic for so many reasons, politically, intellectually, um, ethically. Um, it's, it's interesting that you'd make a stand for the kind of psychoanalytic perspective in the, in the face of this, you know, this, this overarching myth of total knowledge that the, that the age of data has, has given us. You know, a lot of my work is about just a therapeutic generative practice when I sort of dive into the blackout poetry, I really don't treat it as a product or, you know, a finished, um, a finished work. It's really to get me to a certain state of mind. It's, it's to get me to a place where I'm not thinking about art from a place of judgment or thinking about art from um, a place of like finality where the work has to be kind of frozen in a certain state. It, it's to get me thinking about art as, um, as a process and as something that can always be reworked and always be reinterpreted and reorganized as long as it serves me um, and centers my experience. Um, not sure if that's, you know, how everybody should relate to art, <laughs> but at least this specific practice helps me and, you know, it serves as a jumping off point for me to create different things in different ways. It's really more of a launch pad than anything else. Is it can be as accessible as scrapbooking, or it can be as, um, you know, sort of esoteric as like the cut-up method. Um, so, I was really drawn to it for that reason. I had all the materials I needed to start right away. Like I had books on my shelf, I had markers and pens just lying around, and um, they're really 
there's always an excuse for me to not write or not create. Like I don't feel in the mood, but this is so unconscious. Like it is just like putting ink on a page and you're not writing anything. You're just dragging something along. And it really helped me, you know, on those days where I felt like I could do nothing to create. I was too depressed. I was too uninspired. Like it, had just such like a physicality to it and also it felt really good to kind of break the rules a little bit like I have to ruin literature in order to to do this I have to tear a page out of a book that I care about and create something that's very ephemeral and something I don't really care about um so there's something kind of like perverse there and that appeals to me and you know, there's a lot of, when I look back on them, I always, you know, find ways again to reinterpret it. And it just constantly serves as inspiration for poetry and creative work on the days where I can put pen to paper and I can, you know, engage in these like, you know, quote unquote, like higher levels of like thinking. Um, but, you know, the act of just kind of unconsciously doing it um, to make myself feel better was very appealing. Kat, if you could do anything you wanted to do in the field of psychology, what would you want to do? And I had never been asked that question um, throughout. And I had been in the field for more than a decade at that time. And I said, you know, I'd really like to write about psychology and film. And he probed a little more, as most psychologists do. And, um, you know, he said, well, I have someone for you to meet. And at that time, um, American Psychological Association had a journal that was called Psych Critiques. And there you had an opportunity to write about the psychological dynamics found within film. And so I felt like I had hit the jackpot, like, this is it. Um, And so I was sent to the movies and I was sent to write and it was a perfect fit for me. And so after I wrote several articles, um, the same individual said, I think it's time for you to write a book. Um, Best Psychology in Film was um, created and um, it came out in 2019. What kind of films did you write about? So at that time in 2018, the Oscars had, um, at least here in America, had a lot of buzz regarding the fact that many of the films that were chosen and selected as contenders were more diverse um, with um, actors, um, even plots and themes of their films. So I took those films that the Oscars recognized as nominees at that point in time because of the level of diversity in the films. And I wrote about the psychological dynamics found within them, um, within the films itself, as well as the characters who were being recognized for best supporting actress and actor and um, best lead as well. Um, And so the, the book explores really how Every single film that really none of these films have like they're not psychological thrillers or have a psychological plot at all. Um, But the point is, is that with every single thing that you watch and you take in when it comes to media, there 
are psychological dynamics at play. I mean, I truly believe psychology is all around us in every moment of our lives, whether it's with other people um, that we're interacting with, or even when we're sitting in solitude, psychological dynamics are happening. And so that was the goal to be able to um, bring to light and elucidate for the reader what psychological dynamics they were seeing when they were watching these films. Yeah, and I read that you like to write or speak in a way that's accessible so that a more general audience can access these kinds of concepts. Yes, my goal is, honestly, I love to speak to other psychologists and other budding psychologists, um, but really my goal in my career is really to bring psychology to everyone. Um, Historically, I feel like psychology has had this sort of mystery um, to it. Um, What is it? Many people even may be afraid of it, especially to go to a therapist or receive counseling services of any sort. Um, And my real goal is to be able to make it um, something that's just in our general language and our general awareness, just like going to a primary care physician once a year or your OBGYN is something you do every year is being able to think about your mental health, um, hopefully more than every year, but um, at least every year that you're thinking about your mental health health. And I say those as two separate words um, to be able to really um, be able to put that at your radar and your forefront, that that's an important aspect of who you are and what makes you who you are. So ancestors are a huge part of my practice. Um, I think especially for me, one of the reasons I became an ancestral specialist is just because I was so lost in relation to my own ancestors. You know, I'm someone who Um, on my mother's side, it's really hard to track back a lot of our ancestors because many of my ancestors were enslaved peoples in that line. And so, you know, just aren't a lot of records available or the records that are there are just very hard to work through and I haven't been able to to make much headway. Um, But in that line, I also have um, Scottish ancestry because of, you know, overseers that raped some of my um, black ancestors, and I also have, um, you know, Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jewish ancestors. I'm not sure where it comes from in that line, um, but so there's a lot. And then in my dad's line, he is um, German Jewish and Swiss, and also some like you know British ancestry as well. And so for me, growing up, I didn't have a huge connection to ancestors. My parents hadn't really valued that kind of connection. And I didn't really know stories or names very well. And so I felt really isolated from that kind of web of home, real sense of home and belonging that you might gain from that kind of grounding in ancestry and grounding in the land that your people come from. And so I was kind of stuck having to go the spirit route to understand that because I didn't have a lot of physical information or, you know, tracking of the lines to dig through. But what was interesting is... um, when I started that journey, I was working with a Wiccan coven at the time, actually, this is many years ago, like maybe like 11 years ago. And we did this ritual on Samhain or on Halloween and there was a medium there and the medium ended up channeling my grandmother on my father's side, this, this um, incredible woman who's a famous pianist. And 
the first thing she said to me, I, I, I still have chills when I talk about it. She just, Laminium looked straight at me and she said that it was, it was a man, but he was telling my grandmother, my grandmother said, don't believe everything you've heard about me. I'm going to tell you more about me and more about your ancestors. And then she left and that was it. But the medium knew nothing about my relationship with her. My family had always told mostly horrible stories about her. And that's all I'd really gotten. Right? I'd never heard anything else. Um, and it was like she was addressing that in that moment. And then within two weeks of her coming, my parents found this letter in their house that she had written to me for Langston when he writes his book that detailed these like generations of ancestors, stories she had written down, names that none of us had ever seen before. And I'm sure it was there. I'm sure she wrote it when she was living, but it just popped up. So I know that she, me reaching out to make that connection resulted in her being able to reach out back even stronger. And that really led me on this path to, to stumble through this, this relationship that a lot of us feel in the contemporary world of like brokenness with our answers and be willing to move into that discomfort. Cause I knew there was something there reaching out to me and through engaging in a lot of healing work around my ancestral lines, eventually find they became a source of deep nourishment and resource and grounding and protection versus feeling just like this burden and this brokenness. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a medley episode of different uh, episodes of Rendering Unconscious to celebrate the four-year anniversary of the podcast. And I will let you know the names of all of the speakers that you heard. First, from episode number 167 of Rendering Unconscious, there was Lila June and Tanaya Winder. Then we had from episode 43, Lara Shiha. From episode 169, Scott Critch. Number 58, Gregory B. Sadler. Episode 138, Brianna Slisovic. Episode 135, Robert Bashara. Episode 39 with Todd McGowan. Episode 157 with Hannah Zeven. Number 67 with Danny Nobis. Episode 124 with Paul D. Miller. Mary Wilde from episode 158. Aram Sinreich from episode 53. Germ Lynn from episode 8. Episode 93 with Catherine Marshall Woods. And we finished with episode 163, my dear friend Langston Kahn. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore that's r-a-w-s-i-n underscore you can support the podcast at our patreon patreon.com forward slash vanessa 23 carl that's v-a-n-e-s-s-a 2-3 c-a-r-l 
Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. So I hope you all enjoyed that. And as always, we'll finish with a song. This is Bring Forth Our Ancestors. Embrace Ourselves. From a collaboration I did with Per Ulund. Available digitally at Bandcamp, highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com as well as a limited edition CD which comes with original artwork at Tripart Editions. The website trapart.net Enjoy! Sometimes I bring forth our ancestors, those who went before us, carry out so much brutality, I don't think transformed, crossing places, seeking the deep roots and connections where we surge forth, carry out so much brutality, I don't think transformed. Let us seek not escape, but embrace ourselves. The reports of thee at the end of his book tell us of his personal circumstances, of the new age and the immortalist corporate loss of physical culture in the occult and remembered was once identical to the otherworldly or inhuman. Carry out so much brutality, I don't think transformed. I cannot speculate on a better world is possible. Carry out so much brutality, I don't think transformed. We are instead deep and do embody mortality. Live for all to see. 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 Live for all to see.
Live for R to see. Live for R to see. Live for R to see. Live for R to see. Live for R to see. Live for R to see.